Hi, my name is Taylor Decker. I've been to Gateway with my family since I was about two. I've helped in the kids' church and nursery ministries, and I also attend youth. Our text today is Revelation 14, 9 through 13. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives its mark on their forehead or on their hand, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured out full wrath into the full wrath into his cup. They will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest, day or night, for those who worship the beast and its image, or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the people of God who keep his commands and remain faithful to Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor, for their deeds will follow them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. If you have your Bible, I want to encourage you to find Revelation chapter 14. We are going to be camping in this incredible chapter for the remainder of today. And for the sake of our guests, we have been walking through what uh, biblical scholars call the interlude for the last, this is now our third week in the interlude. Prior to that, we've been looking at a number of divine windows of reality. And I know I've given us a refresher on this a couple of times, but I want to do it today again because they're going to have really important significance into what we're looking at today as everything kind of finds its climactic moment and its significance laid out in Revelation 14. So that first window that we saw was the window of the throne room of God. This is ultimate reality. Everything else that we're looking at, that is the shadow. This is the place where we see that God is on his throne. He is sovereign over all things. He is in full and complete control and everything else worships under his feet. And then we saw the window of the scroll and the seven seals. And what did that signify? We saw that no one could open the scroll. No matter how hard we tried, no matter how much earnest pushing and pulling and striving and good deeds and moral work, no matter how much we try, we can't open the scroll. And here's John. He begins to weep because he can't open the scroll. And an elder says to him, why are you weeping? See, the Lion of Judah, the Lamb who was slain, he can open the scroll. And then there's great rejoicing that breaks out in heaven. And we see the seven trumpets, and with the final blast, there is silence in heaven. And once again, everything draws back to the throne room of God. So that's the picture that we've been looking at every single week we're focused on the throne room of God. That's what everything is trying to draw our attention back to. That this is ultimate reality. Everything else is the shadow. And then we enter into what biblical scholars call the interlude. We see that Satan was up in heaven and he was thrown down by the angel Michael. And now he has one objective and one objective only. And that is to distract and to wage war with the people of God. And how does he do that? By any means necessary. He wants to distract you. And he'll do it in, in a variety of different ways. The first way that he'll try to distract you is through important issues that aren't ultimate. 
whether it be politics or civil life or other important topics that you say, like, we got to get these things right, and we should, but they're not ultimate. And he's seeking to distract you in those things, and he wants those things to be ultimate in your life. Or another way, I think this is his favorite, he just wants you bored, inattentive, distracted, asleep. And Satan will use whatever means necessary in order to keep you in that place. And then we saw in Revelation 13, not only is Satan doing this, but he also solicits two great beasts. The first is the Leviathan, the beast of the sea, and we have the behemoth, the beast of the earth, and together they form their own little mini-trinity that mimics and mocks the one true triune God that we worship and serve. And together, they are all trying to distract you even further. But yet, here's what I think is so interesting. When I, when I look at Revelation 14 and what it is trying to communicate to us, it is this. The victory is already won. For those of you who are just joining us recently, let me give you the thesis statement of this book. Just two words. You ready for it? God wins. God wins. That's the good news that is laid out before us in this book. That's the reason why when I was reading Revelation 14 this week, I became agitated again at why is it that this book has been robbed from us through poor teaching as though this is something that ought to fill you with dread or fill you with fear or something you can't understand so you might as well not read it. And yet this book energized the saints in the first century. It filled them with incredible conviction and hope. And yet we look at it and we say, oh man, what is that? And so the good news is that God wins. And if we find ourselves on God's team, that means we win too. And so I shared uh, this video with you a year and a half ago, but I think it's so fitting to share it once again this morning because I think it helps encapsulate the way that Christians ought to respond in their darkest hour. So this is the video of the Raptors winning game seven uh, before they enter into the championship. So here's what you got to know. The ball goes in the net. You got to know that on the front end. Before the inbound pass, the ball goes in the net. Let's take a look. You got to be aware of the inbounder here if you're filling. It's off to Leonard, defended by Simmons. Is this the dagger? I like that. That's fun. Now, here's what, we, here, here's what I want for you as a Christian. I want you to be as excited as those fans at the inbound pass. I want you to be just as excited as those fans before the inbound pass. Because what we know as Christians is God's already victorious. That's what this book is trying to unveil to you so that even in your darkest hour, even in the moment of uncertainty, even in the moment of doubt, even in those difficult times in your life, you can say, God wins! And because he wins, I can rejoice. I can be as cool as a cucumber 
And one of the things that I love about that is, you know what, I already know the Raptors won the championship, but sometimes I just like to go back and watch that video and watch it again and watch it again and watch it again. And so like half of those views are probably me watching it. I want that for you. I want that for us as Christians. So that even when we face incredibly difficult seasons in our life, we're still filled with incomprehensible joy. And I want us to know the game. That Satan is a defeated and desperate enemy who will try to distract you from ultimate reality by whatever means possible. But now that you know the game, God is trying to invite you into something greater. To say, guess what? The ball goes in the net. Guess what? I am victorious. Join me in the fight. And so I I just kind of want to lay before you what Satan and his two comrades try to do to you. I want to wrap it all up in a bow. Here's what I put in your note sheet. The objective of the dragon and the two beasts is this. Satan wants to wage war with the people of faith. The Leviathan wants to capture the loyalties of your heart and divert you away from the worship of God by whatever means possible. And the behemoth wants to convince you to make a compromise agreement to godly living to put your hope in anything else other than God. That is the game. That's what they want to do to you, to distract you from the worship of God who is sovereign and in control of all things and on the throne. But but here's the good news. What this interlude does for us, if we let it, it exposes the game for what it is and it helps us see rightly what God's calling is on our life in the midst of it. And that's what leads us to today. This is what I'm so excited about for Revelation 14. Finally, after 13 whole chapters, this is the first chapter that's going to say to you, join me. God's going to say, this is the part that I have for you. I want to encourage you to enter into the fight. To enter into the war in the right way. And then you get to choose whether or not you want to enter into it. Where, Where you can say, yes, God... Here I am, send me, enter into the fight. Or if you just want to go back to sleep, let apathy take its course and be disengaged from the Great Commission, disengaged from the great spiritual war that is taking place all around us. So here's the first principal point that we see in Revelation chapter 14 regarding you and the great war. And this might be kind of difficult, this might be hard to understand, but this is the point that we see. You are either following the way of the lamb or the way of the dragon. You are either following the way of the lamb or the way of the dragon. You are not neutral. You don't get to sit on the fence Not when a great war is breaking out all around us. You know, I hesitated to give this example because I think it's it's filled with nuance. But we saw this just in the the course of the last 10 days. We see in Europe right now a number of neutral countries who are breaking their neutrality. 
Typically, countries we make fun of for always sitting on the fence. Finland, Austria, Switzerland, or what about the quintessentially neutral country that never gets involved in anything, Sweden. Sweden is in the fight. What are they realizing? You cannot be disengaged from a war when a war breaks out. And so all four of them have said, we're entering in. We're joining in the war. We have to take part in this war because this could be the great war for Europe, not just for Ukraine. And in an even more significant way, the calling on our lives is you, you don't just get to be neutral. In fact, if we've learned anything over the course of the last eight weeks, it's that Satan and the two great beasts, they want you neutral. That's where they want you. That is the way of the dragon. That is the way of the great beasts. That's what they want. The Leviathan's objective is not military control for the sake of it. It wants your loyalty. It wants your eyes off the throne room of God. And the behemoth, he wants manipulation of words. He wants spiritual influence within civil matters, not just for the sake of it, but he wants to convince you to make a compromise agreement. You know what that looks like? It looks just like this. On Sunday, we worship Jesus, and then Monday through Saturday, we act like he doesn't exist. That's the way of the dragon. This sacred, spiritual kind of dichotomy that we create in our minds so that we can have our cake and eat it too. Satan doesn't just want you involved in like super terrible things when something like that will do. Let me give you some examples of this. Um, I love J.R. Tolkien. And in his Lord of the Rings, there's this moment where the hobbit Pippin and Mary are arguing with one another as to whether or not they're going to join in the fight for Middle-earth. And so Pippin says, Mary, let's go back to the Shire. Everything's great there. The grass is green. It's beautiful. Let's just go back to the Shire. And then Mary very wisely says this. The fires of Isengard will spread and the forests of Tuckborough and Buckland will burn, and all that was once great and good in this world will be gone. And then as if to say, if we don't engage in the fight for Middle-earth against Sauron and Saruman, there won't be a Shire, Pippin. So what is he saying? He's saying that you can't be neutral in warlike times. And I, th I think we have this idea that to be on the side of the dragon is to be engaged in Satan worship or the occult or, you know, blood sacrifices or, or something super dark. And yet, I think if we've learned anything from these beasts, they're far more strategic than that. All they want is for you to be apathetic, inattentive, and bored. That's all they want for you. They want you to think in your mind that neutrality is a thing. So let me give you one more example of this. This is from Tolkien's good friend C.S. Lewis in his book, The Screwtape Letters. And if you're unfamiliar with this, Screwtape Letters, Screwtape is a demon, and he's kind of coaching his nephew Wormwood on how to be a really good demon and to influence Christians so that they're not engaged in the fight. And here's what he says. But do remember... The only thing that matters is the extent to which that you separate the Christian from, and he says, the enemy, which is God the Father. I just put in there the throne room of God. Our objective is to edge the Christian away from the light and into the nothing. 
Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Love that. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one. The gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, and without signposts. C.S. Lewis understands the game. C.S. Lewis understands the principles that are laid out in the book of Revelation. We get this idea that Satan, what he's out to do is to infiltrate our country or to make it a worse place through politics or through social structures. And sure, those things are granted. But what he really wants more than anything is to wage war with the Christian and to distract them from the highest calling of their life, which is the Great Commission. That's his game. And that's what this book is trying to reveal to us. And so that's what we find ourselves in. If you have your Bibles, look at Revelation 14, starting at verse 6. Here we are going to see three angels in a row issue proclamations. And then we're going to see two harvests. And the second harvest we're going to focus on at the end. There's a whole lot of blood and a whole lot of confusion. And I'm excited for that. Verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying in midair. And he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. And he said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens and the earth, the sea and the springs of water. And so we see here that the angel goes out and he proclaims an eternal gospel. And who does he proclaim it to? To everyone that would listen. To every tribe, every tongue, and every nation that Jesus Christ is Lord, that God is sovereign on his throne. See the throne room for what it is. This is ultimate reality. So what's the plain main thing for us? We've been invited into this journey. We've been invited to do exactly the same thing. I put it this way in your note sheet. Followers of the Lamb are to be heralds of the gospel. Proclaimers of the gospel. Messengers of the gospel. That is the calling of our life. This is what Revelation 1 to Revelation 14 has been leading up to. If you're looking for the, what's my part in all of this? Here it is. Here it is. We finally, after 14 chapters, get to play a part. We couldn't open the scroll. We had nothing to do around the throne room of God. We sat and listened to the great trumpets. We witnessed the the, uh, demons being thrown down from heaven down to earth. All we've done is watch, and finally we get invited in. This is the part that we get to take part in. And so here's what I want to say very sincerely As I'm watching how Christians have been responding over the course of the last year to two years, I so, so wish that our social media posts were far less to do with these false hopes and far more to do with the ultimate hope of our life. Or I've talked to enough Christians who have said, you know what, I've lost friendships, 
I don't even talk to certain family members anymore because of our disagreements on, on COVID policies and masks and the convoy and things of that nature. I don't talk to family members anymore about this stuff. I wish that our conversations around family room tables were far less about earthly things and far more about ultimate reality. And I so, so wish that our engagement with our unchurched and unbelieving friends had far less to do with things that are temporary and of this world for the next couple of years and far more to do with eternity that is laid out before us. And here we are, as Christians, whispering to the world what we think is most important. And and I want to invite you into this. Is this the priority of our lives? Let's show it by virtue of how we speak, what we enter into, what we talk about with family and friends, with Christians, and especially with non-Christians. Christian, do you want to make trouble? Go after this. Do this. You don't think this doesn't freak out the enemy? You don't think Satan and his minions aren't worried about Christians being actively engaged in the Great Commission for God? You don't think he's worried about waking up the sleeper and for all of us being sold out for the word of God, living it, breathing it, sharing it for the whole world to know that Jesus Christ is Lord? You don't think that doesn't freak him out? I want us to be a church that is devoted to the word of God and devoted to the great commission that we would join together with the angelic chorus and say Jesus is Lord. I'd like you to imagine for a moment what would it be like if we believed in our gut, in our soul, with the deepest conviction of our hearts that the life that we live here on earth is just a shadow, a mist. Here today, and gone tomorrow, but that we have an eternity that is laid out before us. Eternity. You know how long that is? Here's how long eternity is. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. That's how long eternity is. And imagine if we had this great conviction with eternity laid out before us. I think we spend far more time focused on this than on that. That's that's what I think. And so my my hope and my prayer for us is that would be the conviction of our hearts too. It It would change the way we interact with family and friends. It would change the way we spend our money. It would change the way that we spend our time, who we spend our time with. It would be influenced by eternity that is laid out before us, and that is what leads to verse 8. Look at this with me. A second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. What is that? Like, what's going on here? Great commission. This is what we need to be involved in. Babylon the great has fallen. What, What is all that about? Here's what we need to know. Every first century Jewish Christian knew that Babylon was code for Rome. 
Babylon is code for Rome. Here's why John had to do this. Because he's on a deserted island in Patmos, and the only way that letters get across is if he gladly gives it to a Roman soldier, he brings it to the other side, and he delivers the mail. And just like in a maximum security prison, you got to know they're reading whatever he's writing. And so they're reading like Leviathan, Behemoth, Blood, Dragon. It's like, okay, this is craziness. I'll just pass it on. He's just kind of a lunatic. And so, but anytime he's talking about Rome, it has to be codified so that they don't understand it. But Jewish Christians knew because they know their Bible. They know Daniel chapter 7. They know Isaiah chapter 21 and 22. Babylon is Rome. And so here's an angel who has the audacity to say Rome's going to crumble to the ground. Now, no one during 95, 96, 97 AD is saying, "Uh uh-oh, Rome is going downhill. Rome is going to crumble to the ground. But guess what? It did. It did. (laughs) It did. And it only took a very short time for that to occur. And so here's what we see through this, just like we learned last week. Whether it be Babylon or Persia or Greece or Hitler's Germany or Stalin's Soviet Union or Pol Pot's Cambodia or um, Mao's China or Putin's Russia, they will all fall to the ground. Even Domitian's Rome. Job chapter 12, he makes nations rise and fall. So here's the plain main thing that we have to understand for today. Sin has consequences. That's the point for us. Sin has consequences. Just like the mark of the beast, we learned that it's not some chip, it's not a vaccine, it's not your phone, not anything like that. The mark of the beast is our disobedience to the word of God. There are consequences when we don't live up to the standards of the word of God. Because it is calling us to understand that there's a certain way in which we are called to be made. So let me give you an example of this. Um, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but uh, gas prices are up. Right? They're up a little bit. No amens. (laughs) Gas prices are up. Now, here's what I want to encourage you to do. Make sure you don't substitute gas by putting something different in the car. That will break down your car. I know gas is expensive. Don't put mustard in your car. Right? Don't put relish in your car. Don't put syrup in your car. I know it might be tempting because gas is so expensive. Don't do it. Because inside your car, there's an instruction manual, and it describes for you how the car has been made and how it functions best. And you could treat that instruction manual as good advice, but it's to your folly. Your car is going to break down. Your car is going to be destroyed. And to an even greater extent than that, This is the instruction manual of our life. And any time we treat it just as good advice, as opposed to the instruction manual of our lives, detailing and instructing us how God made us and how we can flourish as human beings, any time we treat this not as the ultimate word of God, but just as some good advice for us to follow or not follow, it will lead to our demise. It will lead to our breakdown and to our destruction. And that's what we see here and what is laid out with the third angel in verse 9. Join me in this, verse 9. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and its image 
and receives its mark on their forehead or on their hand, again, that's disobedience, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. They will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest, day or night, for those who worship the beast and its image, or for anyone who receives the mark of its name. The mark is our disobedience. And I think these three verses are perhaps some of the most difficult verses for, our, for us to understand in the entire Bible. Especially for 21st century Western Christians. And here's why. We are constantly fed this idea that love, the, on, the only proper definition of love is love where there's no conditions, no restraints, no moral absolutes, no disagreements, no pushback, or anything like that. We need to make sure that there's certainly no restraints. See, in our day, I think love is code for I get to do whatever I want. And if you disagree with me in that, then you don't love me. And so th that's the reason why I think the word love is kind of a throwaway word for us today. But listen, here's what I want you to see. You cannot separate the love of God from the wrath of God. In fact, the opposite is true. The more you love something, the more capable you are of wrath. Let me give you an example of this. Uh, for, for those of you who are human beings, that's all of you, do you love somebody? Maybe you love your parents. Maybe you have a best friend whom you love. Do you love your spouse? Do you love your kids? What if, what if anyone got in the way of that? What if someone sought to harm those whom you love? You feel that in your gut? Do you feel it? See, the more you love something, the more capable you are of wrath. Of course you're going to get in the way of that because you love them. You are going to get in the way of anything that adversely affects those to whom you love because you love them. And here we see God, he is not just, he not, doesn't just have the attribute of love. Scripture says he is love and therefore he is infinitely capable of wrath. Let me give you an example. Let's suppose that you have a son and you between the age of 2 and 18, you let him do whatever he wants because you love him. Oh, you want more junk food? You can have it. Oh, you want to stay up late and watch video games and play video games, watch movies? You can do that. You don't want to go to school? You can do that. You don't want to eat your vegetables? You can do that. Man, love is love. You can do whatever you want. Do whatever you want. No restrictions, no restraints whatsoever. I love you. What happens by the time your son is 18 years old? He is unprepared for the world. He is socially unengaged. He is likely uh, unprepared for what lies ahead. And then he looks at you with tender eyes and he says, Mom, Dad, why didn't you love me enough to restrain me? And he resents you because you never loved him. You loved yourself. 
And in the same way, that's what we have to see. True love is one that is willing to enter in. And like you, parents always have this idea in their head, like they'll get it someday when they're 25 or 30 or 35. But right now they think I'm their mortal enemy. I'm always saying no, but if only they knew how much I love them. Same thing goes for God to an infinitely greater degree. The more love you have, the more capable you are of, la- of, of wrath. So here's what we've done. We've removed any semblance of just judgment and, ra- and wrath. And in doing so, love has become this weak, pathetic word that is just a throwaway word. So if the wrath of God is offensive to you, I would humbly propose, I don't, I don't think you have a full definition of what love is yet. And th- this chapter, perhaps more than any other chapter in the Bible, is going to help us understand what it is. God loves us enough to pull us out of those things. So here's my question for all of us here. What kind of God would God be if he didn't pull us out of those things? If he didn't display his wrath and his hatred toward things that destroy us? I don't think that's a God that you want. A theologian once said this, only in the comfort of the suburbs do we grow tired and indifferent to God's justice. But in the bloodshed of our own loved ones is when we all cry out for justice and wrath. And here's the second thing that we have to understand with respect to the wrath of God. Every single time scripture talks about God's wrath, it is always in the context of God giving people what they want. God is not the aggressor in this. He's just giving them precisely what they want. See, hell is giving people exactly what they have asked for. I love the way C.S. Lewis puts this. He says, in the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. What are you asking God to do? To wipe away their past sins and at all costs to give them a fresh start? He has done so on Calvary. What then? To leave them alone? Alas, I'm afraid that's what he does. That's what hell is. And we see this constantly in scripture. 2 Peter 3, John 3, 16, Romans 6. We looked at that just this morning. John read it for us during our worship service. Right? All over the Bible, God desperately seeking to save you from the wrath of God through the person and work of Jesus. C.S. Lewis continues... There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will, be, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. The gates of hell are locked from the inside by souls that don't want out. And so if you repeatedly say to God, I want nothing to do with you. Go away. I'm not interested in your advice. I'm not interested in your moral decrees. I don't want to have a relationship with you. Then in the end, God will say, thy will be done. But, but here's what we know about God. God is not only infinitely loving, but all good things come from God. So what that means is separation from the one to whom all good things derive means when we get this depiction of hell and brimstone and fire and and all of this, that's exactly what hell will be like. Because all the good things that you are now enjoying through the common grace of God will all be taken away when God's presence is taken away. And God says, I don't want that for you. I have... I have delivered you from that through my son Jesus. 
I want you to accept the good and gracious gift. And so here is the most important part of all of this. We have to see that in the midst of God's just wrath, he doesn't place it on you. He place it, places it on his son. I put it this way in your note sheet. God's right and just wrath towards sin hasn't been placed on you. It's been placed on his son. He is the wrath-absorbing agent so that you can have life for all of eternity. And we're going to get back to that in just a couple of minutes. So hold that thought. And then finally, we see two harvests, don't we? With the remaining verses, we see two harvests. And I find this so fascinating because I think some of the questions we have to ask is, what is the harvest about? Did it happen in the past? Is it happening in the future? Is it happening right now? What's it about? All those kinds of questions. Here's what we have to see. Here's the plain main thing. The harvest is the lost. And the time of the harvest is now. So I know for many of us, we've had this idea that the book of Revelation's kind of been dormant for years, and then suddenly it's unlocked with special meaning and significance in our lives. Well, this is the one verse in the Bible where you get to do that. Suddenly, the word of God is unlocked for right now. And here's what the Bible says. This is the word of Jesus. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for the harvest. They are ripe for the harvest. I've spoken with many of you who are business owners and managers of businesses, and you've shared with me, it's, it's really hard to find people to work right now. It's like, sir, broke the market. People don't want to work. And, and I have this, this thought in my mind, that's what, that's what God's saying to us. The harvest is ripe. The problem in this story is not the harvest. It's the workers. The workers are few. And so regarding the mission of God, I put it this way in your note sheet, the harvest is ripe, but the workers are few. So let me ask you again, are you following the way of the lamb or the way of the dragon? Are you entering into the Great Commission or are you totally inattentive and bored with the Great Commission of God? Not engaging in it whatsoever. God is drawing you into this. This harvest takes place right now. And I want to convince you deep down in your bones, I want every person who is a Christian in this room to be someone who would say something like this, my lost neighbor's eternity is far more important than my earthly life. My lost neighbor's eternity is far more important than my earthly life that a Christian would be willing to put on the armor of God and to engage in this mission. And then we end with this very odd, vivid, strange scene. Verse 17, look at this with me. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel who had charge of the fire came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, take your sharp sickle, and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vines because the grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes, and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. That's bad news. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city, and blood flowed out of the press 
rising as high as a horse's bridle for a distance of 1,600 stadia. What does that mean? Because I'm curious about this kind of stuff, I I wanted to figure out just how much blood would be in this kind of pool. So 1,600 stadia represents 200 miles or 320 kilometers. That's from here to Vancouver and back to Vancouver and back, give or take just a couple of kilometers. That's almost exact. So that's how long this, this lake, this river, this ocean of blood is. And we know it's up to a horse's bridle, which is probably four to six feet. So I decided just to cut it through the middle, five feet. So a lake that is 320 kilometers long and five feet high, how much blood is represented in that kind of pool? So I took to the internet, like a good person does, and I tried to check and see how much it is. And so here's the answer to that. It is 4.1950558.97 times 10 to the 14th, that's 14 zeros, liters of blood. That's a lot of blood. So then I had to figure out, okay, how much blood is in an individual person? And then I realized that there's five liters of blood on average in a person. That's kind of small. I thought it'd be more than that. Anyway, five liters of blood in a typical person. So then if we asked ourselves, if all the blood was poured out, I know this is graphic. If all the blood is poured out of how many people would be represented in this pool? And I got the answer. Here's what it is. Put it on the board for you. The blood in this lake represents uh, 83 trillion 901 billion, 117 million, and 930,000 people, give or take a few. That's a lot of blood. And in case you're curious, that represents more than 12,000 times the human population of planet Earth. Now here's the question I think we should be asking at this point. Why'd you do all the math? Kind of weird. And what does it represent? What does it represent? Is it your blood? Is it my blood? It's Jesus' blood. So what's the plain main thing? Here's the good news. You ready for it? There's enough blood for you. We sang about it this morning. There's enough blood for you. And so there might be some of us here this morning or, or someone watching online who might say, Justin, you don't know the terrible deeds that I've done. There's no way that I am deserving of the mercy of God. And I would just humbly say to you, I don't need to know you or the things that you've done to know that there's enough blood for you because I know my Bible. And what God says is, you cannot out-sin the cross. You cannot run so far that God cannot bring you back. There's enough blood for you here that Jesus has fully atoned, fully paid for all your sin. And so when we look at that Kawhi Leonard running around, that's what I see when when he throws up the ball in the air and it bounces four times and it goes through the hoop. That work has spiritually already been done through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so we can celebrate on the front end. God is good. He has paid for all of our sins and some. And so we can be assured of this. There's nothing that you have done where you can out-sin the cross of Christ 
he has fully paid for all of your sins. And that finally leads us to the conviction that we need to have to proclaim the good news to those who are lost. One verse, and then we'll close all the way back at the beginning. Revelation 14, verse 1. I want you to see that it starts the same way that it ends. I want it to end with verse 1. It says this, Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb, circle, highlight, underline, standing on Mount Zion, and with him, 144,000, that's just the people of God, don't get caught off with the number, it's just 12 times 12 times 1,000, ultimate fulfillment, the 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Here's what I want you to see. How is it that Jesus conquered Satan and the two beasts? Do we see here the line of Judah? No. What do we see? The lamb who was slain. How do we engage in the fight? I, I think sometimes we get this idea that we need to be more lion-like. We need to stand up. But really what Jesus has revealed to us is the way that we engage in the mission is when we fight like a lamb. So Christian, fight like a lamb. Enter into the mission. It is the greatest thing that we could ever do. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the book of Revelation, which activates our minds and our hearts to see more fully the true and fulfilled promises that we see in the 65 books earlier. That Jesus' death on the cross is the full atonement for all of our sins. And so when we look at this big pool of blood, we ask, Lord, that it would energize us, not fill us with dread, that we would see the symbol that is drawing us to you, that you have paid for all of our sins. And so we can rejoice with all the angels around the throne singing your praises. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to enter into the fight that we would be willing participants in sharing the good news of the gospel. Lord, create that conviction in our hearts. Put people on our minds, family members, friends, coworkers, neighbors, who don't know you yet, and that you have strategically placed in our life for us to go and to share the good news, to herald the good news. Lord, by your Holy Spirit, make it so. Go before us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. People of God.